0: Welcome to Series 2 of Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In today's interview, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard O'Connor, Global Head of Investor Relations at HSBC. Richard's career spans more than three decades, and with his wealth of knowledge and experience, I'm very much looking forward to speaking with him today. Richard's career has covered working as a credit analyst, to being Global Head of Research and Portfolio Manager at a large investment institution. Around 20 years ago, Richard moved into investor relations, first at RBS, or NatWest as it's now known, where he was Head of Investor Relations for 13 and a half years before moving to HSBC as Global Head of Investor Relations seven years ago. Richard, welcome to Inquire and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I'd like to start by asking you more about your role at HSBC, leading a large team. I believe a team of 12, both in the UK and Hong Kong. So I think this must be one of the largest IR teams for a UK-listed company, covering debt, equity, ESG globally, across multiple listings and languages. So I'm interested in how the roles and responsibilities are divided across this team, including the responsibilities for investor and analyst communication.
1: Yes, I mean, it, it is a large team on paper, but when you unpack it into its home parts, it's not as large as at first sight. Firstly, you do the geographic split London nine, Hong Kong three. About half of our share register is, is in Asia, and with the Hong Kong listing, we have a team in Hong Kong, one of our two home markets, alongside the, the UK, to serve that local market, but listed in Hong Kong, our investors in China and Hong Kong. And elsewhere in the region, and I have a head there who leads that part of the world. I'm based in London, but spend many weeks a year in Hong Kong and Asia helping support that team and that listing and that very strong institutional retail shareholder base. In London, you can unpack it further. I have a head of fixed income who covers debt and credit ratings. I know we're going to cover that later. I have a head of the sell side analysts. We've got over 30 analysts who cover us, so we're blessed with such broad coverage, but clearly. They're of demanding constituency, and it's right that we give them resource. And I've got a head of buyerside and ESG, who does what it says on the tin, really, an increasing focus on ESG in investors and counterparties. And we've got a very full-blown Western institutional shareholder based program in the UK, Europe, and the United States. So I have a, both the Sellerside team and the Biaside Institute. I have a couple of analyst managers supporting that within that team. So. So, once you unpack it, you get pods of, of three or so in each in each pod. So, it's a big team to manage, but it's a big, broad program, and uh, and where you'll be glad you're Always very, very busy, we're very engaged with our customers, our investment analysts.
0: So, how do you stay on top of everything, including working closely with your board and executive team? Including, I'm, I'm interested in how you split your time between internal responsibilities, including managing that large team, and external responsibilities, including sitting on some board committees.
1: Yes, it's a very good question and probably at least three ways of doing that, staying on top of events. Firstly, you need very quick clock speed, be able to, to handle emails and incoming pretty quickly. So that obviously involves a long time, not just at work, but in the evenings and over the weekend and indeed early morning. The good news in London, it's, it's quite quiet early in the morning. So I deal with issues related to Hong Kong and Asia during that time period. I tend to then in the evenings or when I'm home after supper, deal with the uh, the end-of-day queries and anything happening in, in America. That's not unusual for multinational companies. And then delegation. As you said, I've got a broad team and I've got a, I'm lucky to have a well-resourced finance department here. So you can't do everything. You have to delegate to colleagues and you have to say no to the things you can't be in two places once you have to prioritise. So the second one is delegate and prioritise. And probably the most important of the three, Clara, is make sure that we retain an external focus on our customers, the investors and analysts. So each week, quarter, year, I'm making sure that, yes, of course you give the internal responsibilities the right level of care and attention and indeed responsibility, because you have responsibilities. That would include the committees. Again, there are committees at HPC, but I I defer and delegate where appropriate, where not appropriate after you attend, but making sure that I and my team are also focused on the external customer base and make sure we're out seeing investors and analysts and giving them the chance they deserve as owners and stakeholders. So we're always trying to balance that out. In one six months, it might, we might be able to be more internal focused and then we balance and make sure that we're more external focused.
0: Tell me more about your leadership experience, including how you coach and develop your IR team. So, for example, how do your more junior team members get access to management as well as investors and analysts?
1: Yes, I suppose, look at my my career history. I've I've built up teams of analysts on the investor side going back, built up a team of originally seven or eight and then 15, 16. So my sweet spot as a a manager and leader, reasonably small teams are between five and six and 10 and 15. I'm not sure I'll be a good person manager of a huge division of thousands of people, but that tends to be where I'm comfortable operating. And as you well know, it's a combination of team meetings, which you have twice a week. Obviously, I have senior managers who have direct reports of, of a couple of people within, within the team, but I make sure that I have one-on-ones with each of the team at least every month for half an hour to catch up with them as a the leader of the team. And we put those in the diary and 90, 95% of the time we're able to keep them in and move things around to make sure that that's a key part of what we do to keep that, that team going. But it's, again, it's not unusual for managers and leaders to have that level of, of people to report to and, and manage, so I'd say it's not unusual there. And then uh, coaching and mentoring, look, I've done it increasingly over the last 10 or so years. I are professionals in other organisations, internally with an HPC and before, helping support. Uh, up-and-coming um, uh, leaders, women's networks and diversity networks, and it's something which I've increasingly had to do as, as you get more senior experience in life and, of course, get reverse mentoring where people mentor me, young people mentor me, and very much help out in some of the new areas of technology and focus, such as AI and cybersecurity, so I've had the benefits of mentoring myself over the years. Um, I'm not sure I completely answered that question, but I'm sure we'd have a, a follow-on question if, if I didn't answer all of it.
0: How do you hire into your team? Is it mainly internally? And is working in IR seen perhaps as a stepping stone for career progression within HSBC?
1: It's very much a combination. HSBC five, ten years ago was known as almost hiring almost all internally people would work for 30, 40 years. That has changed a lot over the last five, eight years. And probably on my team now of 12, about half have been hired from the external world. And half have been from the internal world. It included a couple of uh, what I call graduates from uh, other businesses once they've come off the graduate recruitment scheme, which is very much a rich area of development and talent. So, so it's a combination of the two, and ultimately I think the two have, are complementary. It's right that you have, have, have strong internal talent, internal talent development, but from time to time, half from the outside world, specialist areas, specialist skills, such as my head of fixed income and it's a special area. He have a special skill in that area as a fixed income analyst, and we brought that skill base into the firm to complement our existing skill base. So, very much a combination. I'd encourage you to keep an open mind and not just, just focus on one career path. We all have to be quite pragmatic and balanced these days.
0: HSBC has primary listings in London and Hong Kong, and is also listed in New York. It's the third largest listed company in London with a market capitalization of around 125 billion. So given how many people there are in the organization and how much there is to do, do you feel that you get enough access to management? And I'm interested in how you prioritize that time you do have with management to ensure that you get all of the information you need, for example, for results presentation, and also how do you prioritize management's time with investors?
1: On paper it's a huge organization, across over 60 countries. And measure it, certainly over 220,000 employees. But as ever, when you unpack it, obviously you have the board, the CEO, the CFO, the business heads, and ultimately we're engaging with those, I'm engaging with those on a day-to-day basis. You don't see them day-to-day in some small organizations. You can just walk around the office and see them day-to-day. That doesn't happen here. So you have to, again, be very clear with your diary making sure you're catching what you take the opportunities when you do meet them, be very, very formal in results, prep sessions to make sure that they are diarised well ahead of time so that both the management team get the appropriate level of preparation and support, and also to clear that we're also getting the formal materials required. And again, we do that. We have a we have a network around finance, and we have a whole lot of briefings and a whole process to make sure that, that we get the material in, in investigations, which we then obviously – unpack, package up into the external presentations which you see on the websites. That's your best, which every IR team should have. Here, we're obviously more well-resourced because we get more information because it's a more complex firm. But the principles and the process are the same, whether you're a small business or, or a large multinational, you just need to have more, more formality, if you like, in a firm like HPC to make sure that we're hitting the deadlines, getting the information, engaging with the relevant Individuals. I'm part of the finance executive team, and all the business and geographic CFOs are on. So we're always talking about what's happening in their world, what what's having results, what the themes are, what the issues are. There's a constant clearinghouse of ideas and exchange of views.
0: In terms of investors, how do you prioritise management's time to ensure that investors get sufficient access to the team?
1: Probably not that different to other large, let's call it FTSE 100. Companies, we do split the program what I call West and East. Obviously, they're interlinked, but clearly the East of Hong Kong that's managed out of Hong Kong, and then the West was managed out of London. But we have the normal roadshows in London, Edinburgh, Europe, and the United States, not that different to other 5100 companies. We're fortunate that HPC is present in, all, in almost all the major capital cities in the world. So we have executives traveling, let's say, through New York or Paris or in the East, Singapore and Hong Kong all the time. So you have to practice, say, to the CEO or the CFO or the chairman, keep an eye on their diaries. When they're in New York for a few days, can they have a morning or afternoon to do three or four investment meetings, group meeting? So it's not that we have to do bespoke travel for IR. We have people in the region doing, because we're in those regions. So ultimately, it's again, it's a diary management piece. What we do do formal targeting, as you'd expect, again, not particularly different to any, any other Western firm. What is different in Hong Kong and Asia is that's a fast-developing region in terms of fund management, institutional fund management, the Chinese fund management industry, and that's probably, in some respect, 20, 30 years behind the Western institutional management piece in terms of the development and the growth of fund management in the region. So there we're keeping an eye on emerging themes, growth of the Chinese fund management community, Growth of sovereign wealth funds in the region, growth of superannuating funds in areas like Australia and New Zealand. So we have to be fast footed and quite dynamic. But again, the same principles as, as other firms, we just have to do it in both the West and the East.
0: Just on the Asian investor point, I note that since 2016, you have diversified the HSBC shareholder base by geography and type. So I understand you've increased Asian investor ownership from around 35% in 2016 to around 50% from 2020. Was that a specific target or perhaps more of a reflection of those trends you've just mentioned, which reflect the development within that market of its institutional investor base?
1: I think it's a combination of around that time, there was a scheme connecting Shanghai Stock Exchange with Hong Kong. We've had big inflows from them with one particularly large institutional investor. But it's not just that institutional investor. It's others, both in China and around the region. And so we have benefited from growth in funds under management, growth in wealth in Asia in the last six, seven years. But we've also been, we've been more systematic. We've made it much more like a Western-style investment program so that we are targeting institutions, growing institutions based in Hong Kong. Singapore and elsewhere, uh, making sure we're covering those countries and those institutions, those sovereign wealth funds, which we probably weren't doing 10, 15 years ago, where that scene was much less developed. So it's a combination of hype between Shanghai and Hong Kong, growth in wealth and region, including retail growth, and growth in institutional active fund management community, which you haven't seen in the West, it's those three, and, and us having a more systemic program over the last seven, eight years in Hong Kong and Asia.
0: And just in your shows more broadly, I'm interested in how you split that work across your team of 12. I'm assuming a high proportion of the Asian investor engagement is, is handled by your team based in Hong Kong, but I could be...
1: Yeah, I'd use the Asian region as an example, but you could apply that to our fixed income programme, our sell-side programme in the UK, and indeed our Western programme. So the team in Hong Kong would, see, would at least offer See the large institutional investors in the region between two and four times a year, and depending on how active they are. Certainly, there's a number of institutions in Hong Kong who do see us four times a year, both the team in Hong Kong and the management team, and indeed the group team like the COC when they're in Hong Kong. But of those institutional investors, I would see them at least once a year as the global head, so that if something went wrong or one of my team was away on holiday, they would be able to contact me, same principle in fixed income. Side. So, yes, it is run from Hong Kong, but there's oversight from the group and there's support from the group, from myself and the group executives led by the chairman, CEO, and CFO winning region. So, there's a layer into it where the local team run the program, but you have support and you have the group providing that level of engagement as well. And that's that's useful Where firm HBC, like if you're in Hong Kong in Asia. Sometimes what's happening in the UK can be quite opaque, so it's useful that we can explain our very strong UK business to them, and vice versa. When our Asia teams are in London, we, we make sure they're going to see the institutions in London so that they're getting support, so that they can understand developments in Hong Kong and China, and indeed wider Asia. So it's a layered program, and you can apply that to the other facets, be it fixed income, sales side or indeed the West.
0: And how do you use corporate brokers, if at all, to support with that investor marketing?
1: Yeah, we do uh, use corporate brokers for intelligence and targeting and roadshows amongst top investors. Certainly, both in Hong Kong and, and indeed London, or Edinburgh, we very much do direct outreach and organise those meetings ourselves. We would then have our our brokers organise group meetings, and in other locations, we would have local support. For example, a surprisingly large number of Racial institution invested in Denmark, we would use a Danish local broker there to organise our Danish retro so That's just one example out of 12 or 15. Other examples would of course be Canada, Spain, or Italy. So we use, we use it in a combination. Again, luckily that we have the resource team to allow that direct outreach. We also have direct outreach in governance as well, and that sort of thing. We use brokers to complement that program and help resource that program but we're making sure that we have direct contact with our shareholders and not just overly reliant on brokers for that.
0: Makes sense. And in terms of internal communication on IR matters, how do you manage that across such a large organisation?
1: Yeah, again, email or or the other channels of websites. Put put something on once then 220,000 people can read it. doesn't matter if it's 1,000 people or 220,000. So I don't see the size of the organisations being inhibited here.
0: A more recent event, so March 2023, HSBC purchased Silicon Valley Bank's UK business for a pound. So that must have been quite an interesting process to be right in the middle of.
1: Yes, it was interesting.
0: And you've had a few activist campaigns between 2020 and 2023. I believe you chaired the Activist Working Group at the relevant times during this period. Any lessons learned from this that you can share?
1: Yes, you can do all the background preparation you like, and that is definitely worthwhile. I would recommend it to all relevant parties that you have that plan. What do you do? And you have an up-to-date list of contacts, an up to level of authorities and hierarchies as you work with a disaster recovery plan, for example. But then, of course, whatever form the access campaign is, it's bound to change almost from day one to what you've assumed in that plan. So you have to be prepared to. React quickly, but react very much with the agreed protocols and the agreed authorities and approvals, and make sure that you're fast-footed and thoughtful in your responses and communicating well with both external and internal parties so that you're as best you can be on, on the front foot and you're not seen as slow and reactive. So that requires, guess what? Obviously, a firm plan, but very solid foundations. And then to have a strong team and to iterate and to make sure that you're communicating well, communicating their speed, and then thinking thoughtfully and bringing your stakeholders with you, not shutting up shop, being open, being transparent and being honest. If you do that, you can regress to make sure that the conclusions are the right ones for all stakeholders, not just the company, but its stakeholders, including the shareholders. And that's what I believe we delivered during the, both the climate campaigns climate discussion, should I say, and indeed the uh, activist campaign by a large shareholder culminating in the annual general meeting this year.
0: Are there any other big market events since you joined HSBC that really stick out for you?
1: Yes, in a bad way, the COVID crisis, late March, early April, where we were forced to cancel the dividend. That was excessively painful for our shareholders, excessively painful for the company, letting down our shareholders like that. The share, The, the shares fell by close to 50%. Albeit we were very, very busy, not just covered with COVID, but obviously being very having to be very much on the front of communications at the time. Just reminded Clara, 40% of our shares based on retail, majority of which are Hong Kong retail, and they've owned our shares across generations, half down the family, close to a million Hong Kong shareholders. That's just the dire shareholders, including families, it's a large chunk of Hong Kong. So we're not going to let them down. So that was very, very painful. And the recovery since then has got us part the way back. So, the share price recovery, restatement of the dividend, the announcement of a potential special dividend next year, subject to us getting the proceeds of our sale in Canada. And if we can do that, then I think we would have restored much of the damage which resulted from that a cancellation of the dividend, which was regulatory driven, wasn't driven by the company. On a more positive note that we've done uh, conducted many very successful seminars with our shareholders and analysts showcasing our businesses, most notably in the UK and in Asia, we've done two week-long seminars, one in 2018, one earlier this year. You think about the relations, how much preparation goes into a one-hour results presentation. This was a whole week, five days, including dinners, external speakers such as politicians regulators. 45 analysts, investors, 280 slides. This is what, what I call the marathon of the And that went well, and, and we, we pulled that off. Yeah, certainly the feedback was very, very good. So
0: really impressive achievement, I think. Lots of our clients are doing capital markets events this year, and even just for a, a couple of hours for worth of presentation, I know how much work goes into these things. And your team have been recognised and received awards for effective communication with stakeholders. Is there anything you could as- ascribe this success
1: to? We're fortunate to be well resourced, and the firm has performed well over the last couple of years, building back up from that base with COVID. I've always had a philosophy throughout my years on both the investor side and in of being open, uh, honest, transparent, and being proactive. That I think is something which which I think the market the market appreciates. I know because I was a customer of that on the investor side, and I saw companies do that well, and I've obviously looked at those companies. 20 plus years ago. I've learned from peers and companies around my 20 years in IR how to improve things because we've already need to improve, including, including me, during my career. And ultimately, if you do that and you do that consistently over a period of years, then that gives you a reserve of goodwill, which I think the best recognition is direct feedback from shareholders and others themselves. But obviously, if you get external awards, that's very nice as well as external recognition, not something we explicitly push for or do promote, but ultimately if we do get that and people do mention us in, in surveys, that's, uh, that's always very nice and uh, always very pleasing to see. And by the way, we also study that, that if somebody else is doing well and get awards, A, well done them, and B, how can we learn from them and what they're doing better than us to help we improve over the next year or two.
0: Agree completely. Every time we have the IR Society Awards, for example, we always look at who the winners and key nominees are and look at what they're doing and why they have won the award. And that's really interesting insights. The other great source of insight as well is asking fund managers which companies they rate from a communication perspective. And that can throw up some interesting examples as well from a disclosure perspective. Yes. i more stepping away now from HSBC. Tell me a little bit about your IPO experience in investor relations. So I understand you worked on the direct line IPO, which included the retail tranche. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about HSBC's high proportion of retail ownership in Asia. So tell me more about your experience working on this IPO.
1: Yeah, this was uh, my time at RBS Now, Net West. RBS was, was required to, uh, to divest two institutions, one of which is Direct Line, one of which is Citizens Financial Group, a very large regional super original in the United States, which I also helped support that back in, in 14. So that was obviously in the New York Stock Exchange. So it done very much by the by the team in the US support from all the likes of myself. Both institutions that I had to help are ahead of IR and bring an IR team into the organization. In both cases we obviously did pre-IPO marketing and seminars with slides showing a walk to a higher return on equity, for example. And that was pre-IPO. And obviously, for the direct line one, that was the first IPO in London, really, for quite a while. And we insisted on having a retail tranche, which was successful. And we had very good demand for that retail tranche. Because it was a well-known brand name, we had the support of some of the the retail broker specialists in the market for that. And that was one which we pleased to it's quite high profile. You'd have had the press be negative if the retail share wasn't included in that. So ultimately, that was a successful IPO. We're going back now close to 10 years ago. But that and um, obviously my experience elsewhere meant uh, I do have experience in the retail shareholder base. But nothing prepares you for HSBC and that 30% shareholder base in Hong Kong, which, remind you, is close to 50 billion pounds in its own right, held by families and institutions for generations. And the loyalty, and they're all customers as well, by the way, every single one is a customer. And the loyalty shown by that shareholder base to the company, the sport, is unbelievable. They are critical, very critical, rightly so, of the dividend cancellation. We have very lively shareholder meetings, equivalent to AGMs in Hong Kong each year. We did the first one post-COVID. We allowed 5,000 people wanted to attend and were were traveling to the meeting. And unfortunately, we could only get 1,000 in because of COVID restrictions. But these are huge events, very, very nice people. Can be rightly critical and wanting better performance and higher dividends, and rightly so. But ultimately, it's a, it's a fascinating shareholder base on one we've been privileged to support over the last seven years. What do we do with them? We very much tailor communications to their needs by our Chinese language website, very high level summary of results, fact sheets, the bespoke shareholder meetings which we conduct, and obviously we engage with them as customers as well. So our customer websites also have links and materials on there for those of our shells to make sure that we're communicating them in both channels. So so it's a distinct programme for that particular community, but one which, uh, as I say, is probably our most loyal shareholder, part of our shareholder base.
0: Looking at trends more broadly in investor relations, what do you see as the next key challenge for our profession?
1: I think I would say there's three challenges. The struggles of the active fund management industry in the West, despite growth in wealth, growth in funds. We've seen, obviously, those fund managers are coming under pressure from um, index funds, exchange-traded funds, and the like. They're also coming under pressure from an ESG perspective. And we also observe a a concentration, if you like, in that community in key hubs, such as London and New York, as I mentioned to you, in fixed income. So engaging with that community and understanding pressures they're under, trends in that industry is one which, has always been the case, but is increasingly so now. What does that industry look like in five, ten years' time? And I'll apply that to ESG as well. I've always had a view that ESG would become increasingly integrated into the investment decision process and be part of how companies communicate. And I think that's been true, but I think we've probably got another four or five years in the West, in the UK and Europe, for that to happen, where I would say there's no such thing as ESG. It's just a natural part of a conversation and communication with companies and their shareholders. Just like the conversation about performance. And finally, at least from my perspective, technology. How do we all stay on top of technology trends? How do we stay on top of AI? And my, my view on generative AI is that it's potentially a productivity improvement for IR teams and, and would support us. I've probably been old fashioned now and sharing my age, where I say that I think there still needs to be very much human touch, human intervention.
0: What motivates you to move into investor relations, and what do you enjoy most about investor relations?
1: When I look back and I've, I've, I've assessed my strengths and weaknesses and skill base over the years, uh, IR has tended to suit that. Those strengths and weaknesses in terms of the analytical background, the investment background, and then obviously the ability to communicate—not as the world's best public speaker, but be able to talk around the table to our customers, the investors. That company the industry trends, having a good conversation and helping that information flow between companies and investors and other counterparties
0: increasingly we're seeing IRAs move into non-executive director roles either alongside their day job or towards the sort of end of their career. why do you think that transition from IRA to Ned works so well?
1: I think that boards are and boards of all size sizes are increasingly looking for both IR teams and other advisors to help navigate a very, very complex world of that ecosystem. If you like, some of the trends i described, the active fund management community, the growth in Asia, growth in Asian fund management, to some extent the demise of active fund managers, to some extent the difficulties that the London Stock Exchange has experienced, de-equitisation of pension funds and life funds and other funds in the UK, which I much regret, so they are finding different navigate. You're getting lots of extra challenges from all sorts of directions. Every industry has has its challenges, and to have people who can help navigate that, who have an external perspective, an external perspective of arguably your most important stakeholder group or groups outside of your customers i.e. your investors and that investor community and in the agencies around it. I think boards find valuable because don't forget boards would have very strong finance skills or technology skills or company secretary skills or operation skills and, of course, management skills. If you think about the CEO and managing the businesses, I think they're complementary, which is why increasingly people are thinking about that in terms of investor relations and being at the board. That's the reason why I think it's an increasing trend and one I think we should support, given we should all support. Companies getting very strong external viewpoints to help guide them.
0: Richard, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed listening to your insights, as I'm sure our listeners at Inquire will do too. And thank you for joining Inquire, the investor relations podcast. Please look out for our next episode in conversation with senior investor relations professionals in the UK.